Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We've been looking for weeks at Jesus performing great miracles. Things that people can't do. Jesus is doing them. And as we enter Matthew chapter 9, he doesn't disappoint. He keeps up this trend. Doing things that we cannot do. And in fact, in the last few weeks we've seen healings, we've seen exorcisms of demons, we've seen Jesus calm nature. Nature even responds to his authority. Today we're going to see something that blows all that away. Today we're going to see something that makes everything else look like child's play. You know, when Moses was confronting Pharaoh about his need to let God's people go, he was performing wonders before Pharaoh, showing him, showing Pharaoh that Moses had the authority of God behind him. And you know what Pharaoh did? He called some magicians to come and mimic some of the things that Moses was doing. Showing Moses, you know what? Your God might be strong, but my God is just as strong. I can do everything that you're doing. Now eventually we saw his pride defeated. But there are some things, some signs, some wonders that even the wicked can accomplish. But today we're going to see something that cannot be mimicked. <coughs> cannot be mimicked. By anybody, anywhere, in any time, has never is not being, will never be mimicked. Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus. Let's read. Matthew 9, verse 1. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose, and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Lord, as we look to Jesus, as we magnify him together, I pray that we would see the greatness of the wonder of the power of Christ, that we would not seek physical spectacles in order to follow Jesus, but that we might see the wonder that there is in the forgiveness of sins. That we might bask in the warm glow of his glory today, wondering not as man wonders at a sign, but as those who have received and tasted the goodness of Jesus Christ, who have put his blood on the mantles of our hearts, being washed by the lamb that was slain. Guide us in your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we must 
see the scene here. We must go back to Matthew 9, verse 1. We're going to take a look here and walk through this passage together to kind of see the scene, to see what's unfolding, to see some, some, uh, some suggestions, to see some implications here. And we're in for a treat, I think. I was in for a treat while writing this message. That's always my favorite part about preaching. It's always the preparing. <laughs> and today we're going to be looking here at Jesus, the glory of Jesus. It can't get any better than this. Matthew 9, verse 1 says, In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, we must understand one, something. He had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee to go and heal a couple of demon-possessed men. And now he's going back to where he came from, to his own city. Now, when he says his own city, many of us might think Nazareth. Maybe some of us think Bethlehem. But... In, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we see Matthew 4, 13, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to look there quickly, so that we can kind of get a picture of what Jesus is doing. Mark 2, verse 1, which is a uh, parallel passage to the one we're reading today. He says, And when he returned to Capernaum at some, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has made Capernaum his home. This is where he lived. He's not living in Nazareth anymore. He left Nazareth. Now he's in Capernaum. Capernaum was a small fishing village, but it was also a, a meeting place for, for Roman officials as they journeyed to the east or to the west. This is a place where um, taxes were taken. Um, it was essentially uh, an image of the joining of the Jews and the Gentiles, which is really prophetic of the ministry that Christ would have. Christ came as the, the Messiah to the Jews, and he lived in Nazareth, in Bethlehem. He came to the Jews, but now he is setting up his ministry headquarters in a city where we see the joining of Jews and Gentiles. Pro fulfilling a prophecy that Christ would come and the Gentiles would look to him. But that's not what this sermon is about. But it's important for us to see Jesus, he got into a boat, he came to his own city, which now is Capernaum. And behold, in verse 2, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, he kind of goes a little bit further. Perhaps some of you recognize this, even from this passage. This is the story where um, there were hordes around the house that Jesus was in. Multitudes of people came to see Jesus, to hear him teach. Perhaps they wanted to be healed, to see some miracles performed. And this paralytic was being carried by some friends in his bed. He can't move. He's a paralytic. He can't get there himself. If he could get there himself, then he wouldn't need the healing. But he can't get to Jesus because the people are too thick. Jesus is too popular. <laughs> it's getting in the way of ministry, right? But not for these people of faith. These people take a big risk. These friends of this paralyzed man. Perhaps it was at the order of the paralyzed man. Maybe his friends brought him to the place where Jesus was known to be. And they saw 
just everybody just around the house. People can't even, people are looking through windows. The doors are open, perhaps, and people are trying to peer in or to, to listen with their ear. They can't get through the door. They can't climb through the windows. Perhaps the friends said, sorry, not today, maybe tomorrow. And we remember perhaps the, uh, the, the paralyzed man who sat at the, uh, the well, the fountain, where many people would go, and one time a year an angel would stir the water, and, and, be he- and the first person to enter the waters would be healed. But this paralyzed man that Jesus approached in that, at the, by that fountain never got there for years. He said, somebody always goes in before me. And Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Where's your motivation? But this man is not like that man. This man is motivated. He is going to see Jesus today, whatever the cost. He tells his friends, we're not stopping. We're going to the top of this house. You're going to remove the rafter boards. You are going to put rope, fix ropes onto the edges of my bed. And you are going to lower me down right in front of Jesus. Because this man was going to see Jesus today. He was not going to delay. Jesus was in town. Jesus was able to deliver him. And he was going to be delivered at whatever cost. And it was a risk. Imagine doing that today in some government establishment Forcing your way through the crowds to go and see the president. What's going to happen? The Secret Service is going to take you down. You're going to go to prison for life. (laughs) And this is Jesus, surrounded by disciples. I mean, the disciples were protecting Jesus from kids. Don't you think they're going to protect him from some guy barging in on Jesus? He was taking a risk doing this coming before this prophet who is unlike any other prophet. But it doesn't matter. And that's why it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, it wasn't the the action that Jesus saw. He saw the action, and that's actually very important, and we're going to look at that. But that action told Jesus there's faith here. Real faith, genuine faith, sincere faith. A faith that is steadfast, that does not back down. When Jesus saw their faith, he didn't glorify them for the actions that they took. Though they took actions because they had faith, what Jesus was glorifying was not what they did, but the faith that was the catalyst for their actions. So when Jesus saw their faith, Let's talk about that word saw for a second here. We just had a baptism. And in this baptism, one of the reasons we have baptism is so that we can see the faith of a person who has come to Jesus Christ. One of the many reasons, there are several other reasons, but that's one of the reasons. So that we as a body can see the faith of a sister or a brother who has come to Christ. Faith is very often easily misinterpreted by well-meaning doctrine, good intentions. We by no means want anyone to be deceived into thinking that a person can be saved by performing the right kind of works. But we can be deceived on the other end as well by, by teaching that 
You can have faith without works. Look at James chapter 2, which was read just moments before. James chapter 2. And just an interesting piece of history. You remember Martin Luther? Who brought the Reformation, essentially? This is the passage that caused Martin Luther to not believe that James should be part of the Bible. He didn't think, he he called it a, uh, what did he call it? He called it a, a straw book. This is a book made out of straw, thinking that it holds no weight. It doesn't preach the gospel of grace well enough. You know, it has some good suggestions, Martin Luther thought. But some of its teachings distract us from grace. That's what Martin Luther taught. He didn't believe his whole life long. He believed that James should not be part of the scriptures. He believed that about Hebrews and Jude and Revelation also. Because he just didn't believe that they preached grace well enough. And this is a passage that he hated. (laughs) He hated this passage because he couldn't understand it. He said in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I mean, perhaps when Rich was reading this passage earlier today, you were thinking, but, (laughs) after this passage was read, but, wait, one second, you can't stop talking about grace. Was James mistaken? Or is he filling our understanding of what faith is and what grace is? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I mean, we've always been taught, grace, you're saved through faith. Now James is talking about faith isn't sufficient. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, well, what good is it? So he's talking about a faith that is claimed, but doesn't actually produce anything. If you say uh, to a poor person who has no food, and you know it, and you say, I'm so sorry about your situation. I really am. I feel for you. But then you don't actually try to help them? Nobody cares how you feel about that person because you didn't help them. God doesn't care about how you feel about that person because you didn't actually help them. Because if you truly cared, you'd truly help them. That's the biblical way. And he's using this as an example. He's not, the point of James here is not to tell us to go feed poor people, even though we, can, we should do that. He's using this as an example of how faith and works are supposed to go together. If you say you have faith, but you don't actually work the works of faith, then nobody cares what you say about having faith. Nobody cares about your confession. Nobody cares about your conversion experience because you're not actually revealing any of the fruits of faith. And he says in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is just immature. Is that what it says? It's dead. Are dead things alive? (laughs) I mean, it's a silly question, but we have to consider the text. Dead things are not alive things. (laughs) That's why it's dead. Useless, motionless. 
And he goes on to say, but if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Some of us talk a big talk about being part of the church, the faithfulness to their assembly, about, yeah, I have faith in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on my sins. He died for my sins. Paul is saying, if you, if, or sorry, Paul, James, is saying, if you want to talk about that, then you have to go and show it too. Because I'm going to show you my faith by my works. You can try to talk about your faith all, all you want. I can tell you how much I love my wife, but if you know that I'm abusing her, depriving her of needs, making her sleep in the garage, do I really love my wife? Or do I just love myself? Or do I hate my wife? Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. When was the last time you shuddered and trembled at the glory of God? The demons do that. What's wrong with us? Come on. That's shuddering at the glory of God is actually a sign of faith. When was the last time we had that sign of faith that even the demons have? <laughs> Their faith doesn't save them. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, he's saying, if you don't believe me yet, here's a few more examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. If Abraham would not have offered his son as God commanded. It would have shown that he was not a man of faith. That believed that God could fulfill his promises. His lack of faith in the tangible would, would reveal a lack of faith in the spiritual. His lack of faith in the temporal, in the tangible, reveals a lack of faith in the spiritual. But his, the presence of faith in the tangible, in the actual, in the temporal, revealed his faith in the spiritual. Not that this faith of offering Isaac leaving his house, saved him, but it revealed the faith that Abraham had. And he goes on to say, he gives us another example. Well, yeah, and it says, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is just, this is verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. You can take that verse too far. That's why we must read in context. Many people take this verse too far. Yeah, you have to fulfill the sacraments. Yeah, you have to do this just right. You have to keep the Ten Commandments. That's how you're saved. But that's not what he's talking about. In verse 25, he says, In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab, in the city of Jericho, remember her story. She knew the power of God. Remember her conversation with the spies. The whole city was trembling because Israel was knocking at their door. 
they knew what happened in Egypt. And Egypt was far more powerful than Jericho was. Jericho knew they didn't stand a chance against these Israelites, these people of Yahweh. And the whole town trembled because of it. But was the whole town saved because of that? Because they knew what God was capable of? Rahab alone. Why was Rahab spared? Because she acted on her faith. She put the faith into action. And she fought for the people of God. Part of that was lying. Everybody, wow, well, could Rahab be righteous if she lied? That lie showed her conversion. That lie that she told her own people, condemning her own people, showed that she was converting from idolatry to God. That's what that was. That was an action that, per, that revealed a faith, the faith of Rahab. And she's even in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where only a select few get the honor of being, having their names attached to faith. Like, you know, just imagine having your name next to a word in the dictionary as being the perfect example of whatever the word is. Rahab is, is produced in scripture as the perfect example of faith. Because she didn't just tremble because of what she believed. She actually put her faith into action. Just a couple more verses, one more verse here. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the work is from work is dead. What happens when the spirit of a person leaves their body? We have a funeral. So if works do not accompany faith, then there's a funeral. There's death there. Now we must not mistake, make the mistake of thinking that James is teaching you that you can only be saved if you fulfill certain obligations. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you want to claim faith, then you have to walk in faith. It will produce something in your life. It will lead you somewhere. You will not be content being what you have always been. God does works in everybody's lives. God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. Just because you saw God do something for you doesn't mean that you're, already, that you're saved. I've heard many people say it, but we must remember the scriptures that say it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. To show us that he's not there with a hammer waiting to strike us down because of his great indignation for our sin. He's already shed his wrath upon sin. He doesn't need to do it again. He did it to Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate outpouring of wrath. He doesn't need to do it again. Kindness of God leads us to repentance. So if he is kind to you, come to him by faith and repent. We can fall into the trap of believing that faith saves us as if it alone had some virtue within itself. In a sense... This can be the last line of defense in the devil's schemes. 
Perhaps a person can become convinced by the clear testimony of Scripture that the Ten Commandments cannot save us. Okay? That's clear. But if the devil can get us to believe that the virtue we need to be saved is found in faith, then the outcome is the same. Because we are not seeing the virtuous one. We are seeing the virtue of faith. And that is a heresy that condemns many to hell. We are still condemned because there is no virtue or merit in faith. Only Jesus saves. Faith does not save you. Christ forgives. Faith does not forgive. Faith did not die for your sins. Christ did. Faith is only the spectacles that reveal Christ's work to be satisfactory. That's what faith is. Faith does not save you. When the Bible says we are saved by grace, through faith, it's saying the grace of God in what Jesus did, and the way that we can see it is by faith. Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. We must get that straight. Look, at back, look back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. <clears throat> at the end of this verse, it says, Take heart, my son. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Why would you say something like that to somebody? Take heart. What would motivate you to say that? I don't know for sure exactly what's going on here, but perhaps the paralytic was afraid of being rejected and sent away. Perhaps he had taken too big of a risk to come to him like he did. I mean, Jesus said the same thing to the woman with the issue of blood just down the chapter a little bit in verse 22. Take heart. In both cases, Jesus says, take heart. Do not fear. Don't be anxious. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will not turn away any who come to me by faith. John 6.37 says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So he says, take heart. I'm not going to cast you away. I receive you because I see your faith. <clears throat> I see your faith. Then Christ says something that no man has ever been able to say. Not like Jesus. Jesus has healed. He's cast out demons. He's controlled a storm. These things were all be amazing images of God's power. But what he says next is even bigger. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are are forgiven. Had this man done anything to Jesus? When we hurt each other, we need to repent and forgive. But had this man done anything to Jesus? No. Why would Jesus say your sins are forgiven? There was no offense between this man and Jesus. But was there? Only God can forgive sins. The scribes tell us this. He says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Aren't the people supposed to forgive each other? Why would they say this man is blaspheming? Because the, the forgiveness that Jesus is offering is different than just an interpersonal interaction. That's not what he, even the scribes could understand that. Jesus responds to them by saying, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Evil! What they were thinking was true, if it was just a normal man saying it. 
But what they were saying was evil because this is not just a normal man. Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Verse 5, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is perhaps the greatest authority, not just perhaps. This is the greatest expression of authority that Jesus shows in his lifetime. The forgiveness of sins. Because when we commit a sin, the offense is against God. And only God can forgive sins. Nobody can mimic this. Nobody can forgive your sins on behalf of God. Pharaoh could not find a magician who could do that. You cannot find an ev- a televangelist who can do that. This authority is not given to normal men. Priests cannot do that for God. Because there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. He alone has the power to forgive sins. But the scribes knew rightly only God could forgive sins, but their thoughts were evil because they thought too little of Jesus. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He calls himself the Son of Man. He doesn't even call himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man. Showing his oneness with humanity. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now why was this such a convincing argument? Which is easier for you to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? This passage confused me for the longest time. I mean, it's kind of easy to say either one. But when you think about it, it is easier to just say God has forgiven you. People say it all the time. I don't like talking about other religions necessarily from the pulpit, but when you go to confessions, the priest will tell you that every single time. It's easy to say it. Because you can't really prove that you're wrong, unless you look at scripture, of course. But physically speaking, you can't prove that you're wrong. Nancy, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) What happened? I don't know. Who can tell what happened in that situation? But if he were to say, Nancy, rise and walk. Now, if she was a paralytic, it would be a much better situation. (laughs) But if I were to say, Nancy, rise and walk, and you, everybody in the community knew that you've been paralyzed and you can't rise and walk. But then you do. When somebody says, rise and walk or be healed, there is a reaction that is required in order to substantiate that statement. So it is extremely hard for a person to say, be healed, rise and walk, because it requires a result. Now, if God was fighting for Jesus, then there would be a result. If, Jesus, if God was not on Jesus' side, then there would be no result, because God has that power over the human body. If I were to say to somebody, rise and walk, and they didn't rise and walk, I would look like a fool. I would look like a complete fool. Because what I said, the power I was trying to express, didn't result in anything. Showed me to be powerless. So Jesus is putting on an example to show that he has authority. In front of the people, 
Not because he wants to make a spectacle of himself, but because he wants us to realize that he has the power to forgive sins. That's the whole point of this story that we're reading, that Jesus, we've already seen Jesus has authority over the body. We'll see it again. We see it all over the scriptures. What we need to see here is that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he is expressing that authority by healing this man, proving that the power of God is upon him, the approval of God is upon him, and the approval of God is not upon blasphemers. The scribes accused him of being a blasphemer. So Jesus is showing them, I'm no, I'm no blasphemer. What I say, I say rightly. And if only God can forgive sins, then guess who I am? If I say your sins are forgiven, guess who I am? There's only one solution to this, that this Jesus is more than just a man. The people didn't even really get it. He says he wrote in verse 7, well, he, he told the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home, proving the authority of Christ and the power of God upon Jesus. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. But unlike the people in the Gergesenes, they didn't kick Jesus out. But they glorified God because of that fear. Because they saw that this man was something bigger than they could comprehend. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They didn't exactly get who Jesus was. They weren't making those connections. But they knew at least enough to glorify God in what had just happened in this situation. A seed has planted. It's going to be watered. Sacrifice will be made. But here we see seeds. And I just want you to see the glory of Jesus in all of this. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Paul says, and I'll close with this. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We only have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We don't get forgiveness by faith, by, by works. We receive it by faith. And we go out and we follow Jesus. And really this is in general a story of the story of baptism. Showing us that we are entering into this covenant with Jesus Christ. That we have entered into this covenant of faith. Dying to ourselves. Being buried with him. Being risen to new life. If there is no new life, then there was no death to sin. All of this is contained in the message of baptism. We must look to Jesus to be saved. Not anybody else anywhere else. To Jesus only. To see him as sufficient. That's faith. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I only pray, God, that you will crumble our strongholds. That you will take away our longings for fleshly things. So that we might in purity and one-mindedness give our undivided attention to Jesus all the days of our lives that we would abhor 
the wood, the hay, and the stubble that will not last, that will be burned away as useless garbage, but that we will cleave only to the gold and the silver and the precious stones which will not fade away. Give us the sight of faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.